Good afternoon and welcome to the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast with myself, Dr. Andy Matheson. It's a lovely snowy winter's day here in Yorkshire. Uh, I hope the weather's lovely wherever you are and you've managed to get plenty of good training done this week. Same, same as usual, going to run through a few articles that have caught my eye and just chat through some positives and negatives and things that they might prompt us to do differently. Now, I have to be honest, the quality of the articles this week is is poor, but in a good way. So, it's a number of decent articles, but all have significant problems with them that we see a lot in the sports academics and nutrition academics. So, I think they, they all make specific points about things we must watch out for. So, the first one, I'll just bring it up. It's called Carbohydrate Ingestion During Prolonged Cycling Improves Next Day Time Trial Performance and Alters Amino Acid Concentrations. First officer, Matteo, last officer, Jorgen, and it was published in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. Now, it's a classic example of a small sports medicine, sports exercise, physiology article, seven trained male cyclists, decent VO2 maxes up at 66. So looking at the more elite level of cyclists, they're tiny numbers. And what they wanted to see was would exercising with low carbohydrate worsen performance, increased protein degradation, cause increased breakdown in protein and muscles. And then you looked at urinary nitrogen excretion and in what they were trying to look at, they did, they did very well. It was essentially getting the same guys to do the same thing, but separated by one week. Now, the problem I have with articles like this, and the reason I don't find them particularly helpful, is it's not telling me anything I don't know. When people are doing fasted training or low-carbohydrate training, I don't expect them to do well the next day. I don't expect them to initially improve performance. In fact, if it did, I'd say you've not done it right. Either you've snuck in some carbs or you've not followed the test, the sort of a coaching protocols correctly. You've done it too soft. The whole point of the aims with fasted training is that you're not going to get the benefits now, but for a subgroup of athletes, especially our older athletes who may not benefit from very, very high intensity workloads, full to the brim of carbohydrates, have years of sports specific training under their belt, we're trying to work a slightly different part of the physiology, hopefully a part that they've underworked over the years and they can use to, to develop and keep going because they don't need to be doing their best performance day in, day out. We're thinking performance at the end of the year or four years, not performance tomorrow. So, a slightly pointless study, but it does highlight, you could easily take away from this that it's, it, it tells you that actually you are going to cause muscle damage if you train really hard. I mean, and this was cycle to exhaustion, then do one minute on, one minute recovery intervals at 90 VO2 max. This was, this was a hard protocol and yes it caused muscle breakdown but I don't really care what happens the next day what I'd be interested in is what's happening across months what physiology changes are we getting which athletes is it, is it suiting so I liked I wanted to bring it up because in its example of something it sounds like it's really well done tiny numbers but they always are aren't they but it just I don't think it's asking the right questions. And it probably should never have got beyond the initial discussion with the professor stage, this article. 
The next article is called The Effect of Pre-Exercise Hyperhydration on Exercise Performance, Physiological Outcomes and Gastrointestinal Symptoms, a Systemic Review. And again, this was another article where I felt that they decided what they were going to find, they decided what they wanted to prove, and then they performed all the testing and they've just squeezed their results into what they wanted to find beforehand. So it's just it's just not great science. It's not how we're meant to explore things. It's not how we're meant to challenge ourselves. We're going out of our way to prove what we already know and what we already want more funding for. So essentially what they did was they said during prolonged exercise in hot conditions, fluid loss leads to impaired performance. In hyperhydration beforehand with a variety of different, likely expensive drinks is going to improve your performance. So that's, that's essentially what they concluded, that pre-exercise hyperhydration after doing a systemic review of, of 38 different studies with 400 participants, pre-exercise hyperhydration may improve exercise capacity during constant work rate. And they said there's different osmotic aids, which obviously will all be fairly expensive, may enhance fluid retention, and this area should continue to be explored. So if what you want to do is provide evidence that you should be given more funding by people that are developing osmotic aids in performance drinks, then this, this is the pay-per-view. But I don't think that's what they actually found in their studies. When I looked at what they had found, I mean... Three of the running studies showed no change in performance with any of the drinks, for example. Now, if I'm worried about, I mean, this is this is hot training. What people worry about is, am I drinking enough? Actually, I mean, certainly those those three running studies, for example, I'd say doesn't make any difference. Don't worry about it. Of the overall studies, not just the running ones, 11 out of 21, no difference in performance. Only 3 out of the 21 on their plots showed a significant difference. So they've made the conclusion that they they want to find, which is that we need to put more money and give more money to researchers who are looking into different osmotic aids for hyperhydration pre-performance. But actually what I took away from all their work was that I'm going to reassure my athletes that if they're so nervous before the start line that anything, any drink they throw in trade comes straight back up, I actually I'll say, look, probably not going to make a difference. Good evidence that I can tell you that. It's certainly good evidence that it's not going to make a really huge difference in that actually the confidence I can give an athlete by saying that and showing them this data is going to do far more good than managing to force a little bit of fluid down. And I say this as someone that's normally very pro-hydration in hot environments and has a reasonable amount of experience with heat claps, especially with the military guys and knowing that other than making sure people haven't had a cough or cold and haven't been out in an absolute heavy drinking session the night before, there's not much you can do um, for those sort of long, hot hot training sessions other than try and get them to uh, get a bit of drink in and cool as much as they can and kiss off as much as they can. So for me, it will change what I do, not in the way they want. The next article was, was a little bit more, a little bit better. So it was factors influencing the hepatitis response to exercise in individual participant data meta-analysis. First author of Fensham, last author McKay, and it was published in Sports Medicine. Now we've talked a little bit about hepatitis before, and lots of work going on, especially out of, sort of Australian research study groups 
looking at how is this involved? How does it link in with all these inflammatory markers? And what what's, what does it mean? So I love the way they describe the episode in the master iron regulatory hormone. And yeah, that sums it up, doesn't it? It's really important. It's to do with iron. It's a hormone, so it has huge impacts on other things. It doesn't just have an impact on the thing that we, we like to think about with it. And so what they said is, is they said hepcidin has been shown to peak three to six hours post-exercise and might be linked to iron deficiency in athletes. And what they wanted to show was that this increased post-exercise was linked to exercise intensity and trying to kind of develop this picture of what, what goes on with hepcidin concentrations. The problem is we also know that there's diurnal variation, like many hormones in hepcidin, and actually single measurements such as pre and at three hours probably aren't enough. Actually, you probably need to be measuring over 48 hours and longer. So, Whilst it was interesting, you know, so it's useful to know that, that that's what's going on with the concentrations. And what I'll take away from it is I will be very careful about when I'm doing iron levels and when I'm trying to interpret iron levels, what training my athletes might have done the morning of their um, blood test or the day before the blood test. Um, so we talked last week a little bit about how this is Iron is much more complicated than we'd like. And actually, because of developments and understanding of what this regulatory hormone does, we're now able to say, actually, you can probably have your iron every other day. Um, it's not quite as simple a, a process as we thought. These single iron studies that we're doing probably aren't as helpful as we thought. Um, so hopefully, at some point, there will be a really nice review article that me, you, and everyone else can understand and come away with a clear understanding of what all the impacts implications are for hepcidin and the fact that it goes up and down, the fact that there's a hormone, the fact it has other interactions. This wasn't it, but this was the sort of thing which is going to lead towards our understanding improving. The next article was in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports. It was called Effects of a Two-Year Dietary and Physical Activity Intervention on Cognition in Children, a Non-Randomized Control Tile. First author, Naveed, last author, Hapla. So this was 504 Finnish children. And the reason this caught my eye is it was it was talking about one of the systems of monitoring these children allocated either to a intervention group or a control group with dietary advice. They had concluded that there seems to be a link between increased dietary scores as a measure of dietary quality and improved cognition and increased consumption of low-fat milk and improved cognition and decreased consumption of red meat and sausages. Now, I don't want to dive into the red meat and sausages and how do you separate that for a sort of ultra-processed food argument. What I was interested in and what I felt they did as a classic error in diet, nutrition and dietary studies was about the low-fat milk. So, because I saw that and I thought, oh, I'm really interested to see why they feel that low-fat milk is, is key. And the question with this that we, we've, we've discussed previously is whenever you're saying 
something impacts someone's diet, you must prove what they are taking instead of it. So what is what is being substituted in and out. So it's not enough to say, we saw that this was linked to this change. You must also say, people that eat more of this or people that eat less of this, this is what they are doing. This is what they're switching in and out. So you can't just have one side of the, of the calculation, if that makes sense. You can't just have what's going up and down. You've got to say, what would Finnish children be drinking instead of the low-fat milk that's caused this? And they didn't do it. And it, it essentially just means I can't take anything from this. Now, they wanted to make it clear that they are big fans of low-fat milk. I think most of us find the idea of low-fat milk a little bit daft these days. What's the perfect milk? Probably human maternal milk. If you're going to drink a milk, mum's milks, breast milk is, is perfect. Um, probably a little bit high in sugar as you get older. But developing children and developing brains, the idea that someone that's making all these cells doesn't need huge amounts of cholesterol and lipid and fats, which are key to creation of hormones and new cells, I always find worrying. And anywhere you go in and you see low-fat milk promoted, why? This certainly didn't provide any data for that. What they proved is that increased milk consumption seems to be linked with improved cognition. But what were they drinking instead of the milk? What has this stopped them drinking? Is it squash? Is it fizzy drinks? Yeah. Then of course low-fat milk is going to be better. But they haven't really clearly gone into the difference between high and low-fat milk. And that's what they needed to have done. And tell me what they're drinking instead of the milk. So the next article was a letter that I enjoyed, mostly because I thought last week that our ultra-processed fat article was going to win my year prize for the most interesting competing interest section at the bottom. But this one pipped to it, I think. So this was called WHA Guideline on the Use of Non-Sugar Sweeteners, a Need for Reconsideration. And it was a bunch of Canadian academics, first officer Can, last officer Stephen Piper. And they essentially just say that the, the data that the WHO nutrition and food safety department guideline was based on is just cohort studies and it's not good enough to make a conclusion based on that. And to be honest, I didn't feel that like they particularly read what the WHO had written because that's essentially what the WHO say. They say, they say, we don't know, but this is enough to give us pause for thought and we shouldn't be encouraging something that in some early studies and these cohort studies appears to be linked to strokes. It doesn't seem that difficult a concept, but they this is an article, this is a letter where they say, no, you must you must prove that they're stroking out in front of us before we'll change our mind. But the bit I really enjoyed was the competing interests at the bottom. So it has author information, author affiliations, but you've got to go all the way down to get the competing interests. And it's long and interesting and involves a lot of money from sugar industry and sugar substitute industry. So, 
if I was looking for balance, this is this is what I wanted to I take away from this, and what I find really hard in working my way through nutrition, science, and data. It's so hard to find balance anywhere. So I thought the WHI guideline was WHO guideline was actually pretty balanced. It read very well balanced. I couldn't find that much dirt on the the authors. None of them seemed to be working for big water, as far as I could tell. Although maybe maybe I just needed to look look harder. But there's such a lack of balance in the in the replies and in the letters. And this is in this is in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which is is a really good paper. So why are the editors not challenging more? Why what these these guys needed to be doing was in their first line of their their reply saying we represent, we work for, we have worked for years doing this, and this is why we feel that our work has been represented and what we are doing to make it clearer for the consumers and for the doctors. And then I would I would be really interested in what you had to say, and I'd find it really useful. And I would feel that I could trust what you were saying to stop me falling into my little echo chambers. But, but you've not done that, and it makes it very difficult to trust you when, when you don't. So the next article is, again, another one which I was in the same, same journal, European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Plant-based alternative proteins, are they nutritionally more advantageous? Uh, first of all, okay. Last was Sir Henry. Uh, and actually, I thought this was really quite good. This was an example of exactly what I'd like to see more of. It was just nuanced, thoughtful, and it paints a picture of a very grey, difficult area to navigate, which is what it is. And so when I read it, I think I, I would... I would trust what they're saying. I thought that this science was decent. 50 individuals saying where they were from in Singapore, four-day food record, which is, is a fair bit of work and a decent, decent effort, and recorded all what the food they normally eat, and then designed substitute plant-based alternatives. What they said was they then they found there was a significant increase in carbohydrates, dietary fiber, and micronutrients including, uh, interesting enough, sodium and calcium when they did that. And then a good discussion about why that might be. And this is hugely useful. And so if anyone's saying to me, can you tell me a good place to look to find the pros and cons of switching someone from non-plant-based to plant-based, I'd happily point them towards this study. And I'd say, what I found interesting was your carbs will go up, your sodium might go up. You're on a few drugs where we already have quite a bit of sodium going into you. So I don't think it would be sensible. Or as you do it, you probably need to get a nutritionist just to talk through why why your sodium might have gone up and what you could do about it. So European Journal of Clinical Nutrition, that first one was poor. This I thought was excellent and I will change my practice and I will point patients who are asking about switching to plant-based proteins and diet I will signpost them towards this article. Right, the next article was this was yeah back to four articles now. So this was called Priestly Protein Supplementation Does Not Improve Recovery from Load Carriage in British Army Recruits. First also Chapman, last also Rawcliffe. I know some of the people in 
in this article, which I should declare having worked at many of the army bases where they do their research, I was a bit disappointed in this. So what we, I often seem to notice, and, I, and this is where I find it quite difficult with military researchers, I... 40 hours after we've supplemented you, is that protein going to have made any difference? Well, of course not. I mean, what a daft study. Who on earth said, yes, this is this is exactly how I like to know whether I feel I feel as good, we're so easily going to be able to control any confounding factors that we can just do some assessments at the 40-hour post stage and we'll know for sure, we'll be able to demonstrate for sure that there's a, a drop or an improvement in their performance. I mean, if I suggested that to any coach, they'd just say I didn't have the foggiest about physiology or training people or sort of the patterns of recovery and and ultimately no real understanding of what the aim of training is, which is to degrade the body so it adapts to a stronger position. And what I feel about this was it was so they, they essentially found that supplements with protein made no improvement to the soldiers. So they can conclude that actually British Army recruits don't need any extra protein and it wouldn't improve their performance at all. Ignore the fact that every elite sport would say that no, we have there is good evidence from almost every sport that it does have a positive effect. No, we've that's not what we want to find because we're trying to save money for the military and justify not giving them adequate protein. So I almost think I can't read this sort of article because I have too many preconceived notions of what the military is going to do, certainly in the UK, and they're always going to see, try and find a way to cut back on good food and food first options and try and top up with some cheap carbs. And it's incredibly frustrating because if you are the doctor seeing the overtraining injuries and essentially seeing the physical relative energy deficiency in these recruits because they don't have enough good quality food day in, day out, it's quite hard to then see people who are really clever produce uh, an article like this that seems so utterly flawed. Interestingly enough, I, I, I bumped through to another Frontiers in Nutrition article and found a military that actually seems to be really trying to do it a bit better. And they looked at eight weeks of resistance training, combination of a high-protein diet on body composition, muscular performance, markers of liver and kidney function in slightly older ex-military men. And that was the Iranian military. So they're willing to really have a good look at what the impact of going up to a, it's not even high, it's 1.6 grams per kilogram per day protein impact would be. And they found, as you'd expect, improvements in muscle strength and lethal muscle mass. Uh, and on to the last study, so it's called Combined Probiotics with Vitamin D3 Supplementation Improved Aerobic Performance in Gut Microbiome Composition in Mixed Martial Arts Athletes. And what they were looking at was what happens if in addition to your vitamin D, we give you a probiotic. So small trial, four weeks long, 23 athletes. Um, and interesting, so it was probiotic and vitamin D or a vitamin D group. Now... You've already twigged what's the problem. We haven't got a control group and we haven't got a probiotic on its own group, which makes it very difficult to 
say anything about the data, which is really frustrating because otherwise it was double blind, placebo controlled, four weeks is a reasonable time, looking at a, a raft of inflammatory markers, looking at gut microbiome composition, GI permeability, and aerobic performance. So loads of really good things, but all I wanted would be a couple of extra arms just so I could say, wow, look, you've really, you've really assessed across the, the raft of areas. And I can come away giving some really strong recommendations to my athletes that actually, as well as your vitamin D3, add in some probiotic. And I wouldn't even mind if you had said that it has to be this particular probiotic. I would have happily uh, backed and promoted a brand if, they, if they'd done this trial a little bit better. Um, they did show in the bit in what they did that combined probiotic and vitamin D causes, unsurprisingly, changes in the gut microbiota, improvement in epithelial cell permeability. Again, not surprising. We're giving a, a probiotic, and but this was extended time to exhaustion. So, is there something about probiotics being combined with vitamin D three? Maybe not that I can say for sure from this trial, but it's interesting. And if I'm recommending someone start vitamin D3. Should I also be recommending they start probiotic right now? I'd certainly have the discussion. I'd certainly have the discussion. And hopefully, uh, this group will come out with a slightly more thorough study that really allows me to sing their praises. Right, that's, that's it done for today. Hope you have a great rest of the weekend, and I will catch up with you soon.